Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. A federal grand jury indicts former Trump advisor Peter Navarro with two counts of contempt of Congress. Navarro defied subpoenas by the House January 6th committee. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis was determined to make the state's majority black districts less racially biased. But now black voters say the redrawn districts are too white. But I, I think in this particular case that Governor DeSantis has the better argument. Florida's health care agency is reportedly on track to make changes to its policies regarding transgender treatments for minors. Reports say it will exclude procedures like sex change surgeries from Medicaid coverage. President Biden today praised May's jobs report, even as he admits it's overshadowed by record high inflation. And what does a cooling job market mean? That's a good thing. That's a sign of a healthy economy. It has now been 100 days since Russia invaded Ukraine. NTD speaks with a military affairs expert for his analysis of the conflict. We are entering a new period of great power conflict. Federal grand jury today indicted former Trump trade advisor Peter Navarro on criminal contempt of Congress. It has to do with him defying subpoenas from the House January 6th committee. The grand jury indicted Navarro on two counts of contempt of Congress. One count is in response to his failing to provide documents requested by the committee, while the other is for his failing to show up and testify. Navarro defied the subpoenas, citing executive privilege. But the chairman of the House January 6th committee, Democratic Congressman Benny Thompson, claims executive privilege only applies to the president. This makes Navarro the second former Trump official, following Steve Bannon, to be indicted over the January 6th investigation. The Florida Supreme Court has decided not to block a congressional map drawn by Governor Ron DeSantis' office. Critics claim the new map negatively impacts black voters. NTD's Arlene Richards has the story. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and the Republican majority legislature had been at odds for months. They argued over how the state's congressional map should be redrawn. DeSantis wanted to eliminate two majority black districts, saying they made the map an unconstitutional racial gerrymander, which means drawing a map to make sure a certain racial class wins the district. Lawmakers disagreed. The governor eventually got his way. And on Thursday, the Florida Supreme Court decided to let it stand. Voters and civil rights groups argue the new map is also an unconstitutional racial gerrymander because it includes more white communities. Who's right? Who's wrong? Eric Cardall, special counsel at the Thomas More Society, says just because the lines are changed and it affects racial groups differently doesn't mean it is unconstitutional. You know, there's such a sort of history of that in the United States, and I know that's been restricted by recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions, but I, I think in this particular case that Governor DeSantis has the better argument uh, than the groups opposed to him. He said this case could be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court because federal courts have jurisdiction over racial gerrymandering cases. And he noted that a federal court previously found many of Florida's election laws were overtly racist prior to the 2020 election. I, I think that there's an issue there uh, regarding racial gerrymandering. Uh, the, the governor was trying to address it. He did a good job. Of course, there are critics 
but I, I think it's time to move on. But there has to be, you know, and I think we all agree, not, not a rule regarding racial gerrymandering, but not, not so aggressive that, that the courts are making all the decisions regarding the maps. The new map gives Republicans the advantage in 20 of the state's 28 congressional districts. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Florida's health care agency is reportedly on track to exclude transgender procedures from Medicaid coverage. This would apply to sex change surgeries, puberty blockers, and hormone therapy. Here are the details. The Florida Agency for Healthcare Administration, or AHCA, oversees Florida's Medicaid program. The agency on Thursday released a report summarizing its research about the effectiveness of treatment for gender dysphoria for children. The agency finds that several services for the treatment of gender dysphoria, i.e. sex reassignment surgery, cross-sex hormones, and puberty blockers are not consistent with generally accepted professional medical standards and are experimental and investigational with the potential for harmful long-term effects. Their research also finds that scientific studies supporting hormone replacement therapy, puberty blockers, and sex reassignment surgery for treating gender dysphoria are weak to very weak. The agency says it is now starting to make rules regarding Medicaid coverage for treatments for gender dysphoria. According to NBC News, the Florida Health Department asked the state board regulating doctors to ban transgender treatments for minors following the release of the report. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. Multiple LGBT organizations are criticizing the move. The human rights campaign calls the measures a ploy to create controversy, to ignore medical best practices, and to refuse to provide necessary care to some Floridians for partisan reasons. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem is planning to sue the Biden administration over an overhaul of the federal school lunch program. That's because the program has a requirement about transgender policies in schools. Here are the details. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem announced Thursday that she will sue the Biden administration over how it handles transgender issues under the federal school lunch program. The Department of Agriculture announced in May that all state and local agencies that receive federal funding for meals must not discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. In other words, schools could lose the funding if they are not allowing biological males who identify as females to use women's restrooms or compete in women's sports. The South Dakota governor criticized the policy in a press release, saying President Biden is holding lunch money for poor Americans hostage in pursuit of his radical agenda. He's insisting that we allow biological males to compete in girls' sports or else lose funding for SNAP and school lunch programs. South Dakota will continue to defend basic fairness so that our girls can compete and achieve. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack defended the policy in a statement saying, the Department of Agriculture is committed to administering all its programs with equity and fairness and serving those in need with the highest dignity. A key step in advancing these principles is rooting out discrimination in any form, including discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The latest on the U.S. job market. House President Biden reacting to the May jobs report amid soaring inflation and what's his response to Elon Musk, who's now saying he has a super bad feeling about the economy? NTD's Iris Tao has more. Employers added 390,000 jobs in May, according to the latest jobs report released on Friday. That's robust job growth, but also the slowest month in more than a year. President Biden says it's a sign of a steadying economy. We aren't likely to see the kind of blockbuster job reports month after month like we had over this past year. 
But that's a good thing. That's a sign of a healthy economy. One economist agrees, telling NTD that a cooling job market could ease heated inflation. The idea of that is to slow the economy and, and reduce demand and bring inflation down. Now, part and parcel to that is we will see a slower pace of job growth. The unemployment rate remains at 3.6 percent, slightly higher than before the pandemic hit. The labor secretary says there's room for more employment. So even with inflationary pressures that we're seeing out there, uh, people still need jobs, and need good-paying jobs. This, as Biden admits, things are overshadowed by inflation. And there's no denying that high prices, particularly around gasoline and food, are a real problem for people. But as he vows to tackle it, warnings are emerging. This week, J.P. Morgan's CEO said this about the economy. It's a hurricane. It's, we, right now, it's kind of sunny. Things are doing fine. You know, everyone thinks the, the Fed can handle this. That hurricane is right out there down the road coming our way. And Reuters just reported that Elon Musk told Tesla executives that he has a super bad feeling about the economy and needs to cut 10 percent of Tesla jobs. But Biden brushed off Musk's comment. Lots of luck on his trip to the moon. I mean, I, I don't, I mean, you know. Although Biden did not directly mention fears of a recession, he said he's confident that efforts to tame inflation will not come at the cost of other gains. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Teachers at a top high school in San Francisco gave first-year students considerably more D and F grades this past semester. This after the school replaced its test score-based admission system with a lottery. NTD's Grace Coulter speaks with a school admissions expert about what's behind the spike in failing grades and how this relates to broader trends seen nationwide. Lowell High School, ranked one of the highest performing public schools in California, has reported a dramatic spike in failing grades among its freshman students. The jump coincides with the first year the school admitted students by lottery instead of academic achievement. According to records obtained by the San Francisco Chronicle, first-year students admitted through the lottery received three times the number of Ds and Fs than older students admitted through the merit-based system. Speaking with the Chronicle, Lowell's principal said that remote learning could have caused the jump in the freshmen's failing grades. However, other grade levels did not experience the same decline. Lowell High School has long had a reputation of academic excellence and has consistently been ranked number one in the Western region for the number of advanced placement exams given. Could Lowell's key to its success also explain this recent uptick in failure? What makes these schools outstanding is the students that they accept. Alina Adams, education writer and school admissions expert who graduated from Lowell herself, says grade-based admissions ensure the students who are admitted are already working at a certain level and know the material. If you take students by lottery, then kids are coming in who don't already know the material, who are not prepared to learn higher level material, and as a result, of course they're going to fail because no amount of magic thinking, no amount of sitting students next to other students who know the material is going to change that. The drop in grades seen at Lowell is likely to become part of an ongoing and heated debate around the school's admission system. In recent years, Lowell's merit-based system has come under fire due to the school's lack of diversity. The student population is largely made up of Asian and white students, leading to accusations of inequality and racism from progressive groups and activists. 
In February 2021, school board members voted to end selective admission in response to, quote, ongoing pervasive systemic racism at Lowell High School. However, the move was overturned in court due to procedural violations. Then, in December last year, the board again voted to scrap the merit-based system, this time for reasons relating to the pandemic. Lowell isn't the only school ditching merit-based admissions. Several selective high schools across the U.S. are moving away from the system, often in the name of equity. They're all trying to change the demographic of the students who are accepted to these schools without addressing the underlying cause for why they're not getting the numbers they want in the first place. Adams says merely ditching test score-based admissions will only result in lower student achievement, as seen at Lowell. It's not enough to just accept students into these schools. You have to make it so that these students succeed. It's much easier to just say, oh, we're going to accept more black and Latinx students and they will succeed. That, that's kind of easy. What's harder is to say, let's go back and see what the problem is at the middle school level, at the elementary school level. Let's invest in resources. Let's invest in better curriculum. Let's invest in better teachers so that these students, when they take the test will organically integrate the school because an equal number of students of all races will know the material. It's likely that this recent drop in grades seen at Lowell will contribute to the broader discussion around student admissions and how to ensure all children get quality education. Grace Coulter, NTD News. Today marks the 100th day of the war in Ukraine. Russia has gained some ground, but Ukrainian forces don't plan to back down anytime soon. NTD's Jason Perry spoke with a military affairs expert to get his analysis. The United States is deterred, NATO is deterred from joining Ukraine in its war against Russia because of Russia's nuclear weapons. Richard Fisher is a senior fellow at the International Assessment and Strategy Center. I asked him about Russia now controlling about 20% of Ukraine. Well, before the war, Russia also controlled close to 20% of Ukraine. So after 100 days and an estimated 30,000 lives wasted, thousands of armored vehicles, uh, uh, almost 200 combat aircraft, perhaps many more helicopters, after this tremendous waste, uh, uh, Russia has really achieved nothing except the condemnation of the world. But he said the Russians still have options. They can use their recently developed small nuclear weapons that can take out a large portion of a town or city, and that could break the resolve of the Ukrainian people. But Russia does not use those nuclear weapons because it wants to prevent NATO and the United States from becoming actively involved in the war to support Ukraine. But Fisher says if the war continues for another 100 days, the pressure on Russia to escalate its use of force will increase greatly. He offered advice for young people in the United States who are of draft age. We are entering a new period of great power conflict, conflicts that could escalate very quickly and become the basis for widespread drafting of youth. It is, it is my observation, conclusion, 
that the American government simply is not doing enough to prevent the escalation of these conflicts that would then require uh, the drafting of a generation of youth and sending them to war. He went on to say that if you don't want to be drafted and sent off to war, you need to consider what it's going to take to arm your government sufficiently to prevent war. The last time Americans were drafted to fight in war was during the 1960s and 70s for the Vietnam War. Jason Perry, NTD News. President Biden today suggested Ukraine may have to give up parts of its territory to Russia. A reporter asked him, does Ukraine have to cede territory to achieve peace? And Biden replied, it appears to him that at some point along the line, there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement. And coming up, getting to intern at the White House. It used to be a big enough honor that the job didn't need to pay a single dollar, but now that's all changing. And seven states are holding their primary elections next week. We'll take a look at what races are scheduled after this short break. How about a job at the White House or an internship there? Until recently, people weren't paid a dime for interning at the White House, but that's all changing. NTD's Phil Zoe has the story. A chance to intern at the White House. No salary, no problem. That used to be the case, but now that's all changing. The White House says interns will start getting paid for the first time ever to level the playing field for low-income students or first-generation professionals who otherwise might not be able to work there. If the intern didn't get paid. They'd have to get a second job in order to make ends meet and, and cover their expenses more than likely. So it's a difficult stretch. Denise Graziano is an expert in talent optimization, often advising Fortune 500 firms on how to retain and attract talent. In America right now, the talent pool is very tight. So it's probably something that they needed to do in order to attract enough of the right talent so they could get the work done. White House interns will get paid $750 per week and expected to work a minimum of 35 hours. That makes the maximum hourly pay rate $21.42. So when you build talent pools before people graduate, it's a smart investment for the future. And when you don't have a lot to choose from in a tight labor market, it's a smart play. Applications to intern at the White House will open next Monday. The program will run for 14 weeks with full and part-time positions. Phil Zoe, NTD News. Staying in D.C., today the Victims of Communism Memorial Foundation opened its 1989 Tiananmen Square exhibit for the anniversary of the massacre. NTD's Melina Weiskup brings us the story. Artifacts include students' tents, letters from jailed democracy activists, and a painting of the youngest victim, only nine years old. A spokesperson told us that most Americans don't know that the Chinese communist regime crushed student protesters in 1989 for demanding human rights and basic freedoms. The uh, disproportionate and unbelievable and violent response that they were met with from the Chinese government, which was that uh, thousands of tanks uh, came out onto the streets of Tiananmen and crushed uh, these students uh, in their demands that they were making for freedom. 
She says that many Americans, millennials in particular, do not understand communism. In a poll conducted by her organization, about one-third preferred to live in a socialist system. About half did not know that Mao Zedong was responsible for tens of millions of deaths through famine. The Tiananmen massacre is a censored topic in China. Mothers of Tiananmen collected photos of about 200 students who were killed, but the real number of deaths is believed to be in the thousands. I think an important message is uh, that people can't take freedom for granted and to know uh, about the brave struggle of those who have fought for it. The Victims of Communism Museum memorializes over 100 million people murdered by communist regimes. The foundation is opening a museum in Washington, D.C. later this month on June 13th. Seven states are holding their primary elections next Tuesday, June 7th. Let's take a look at what races are scheduled in Montana, New Mexico, and New Jersey. Montana will not have a Senate or a gubernatorial race, but is holding two congressional races in two newly drawn districts. While Washington fights, Matt Rosendale goes to work. He expanded access to health care, lowered premiums, protected pre-existing conditions. Republican Congressman Matt Rosendale currently represents the entire state. He's expected to win re-election in the state's second district, but still faces primary challengers. The first district is more competitive, but leans red. Ryan Zinke is the most high-profile GOP candidate. So please raise your right hand. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony... He served as Secretary of the Interior during the Trump administration. Over in New Mexico, incumbent Democratic Governor Michelle Grisham is also running for re-election. What can a governor do to jumpstart our economy? A lot. Though she could see a challenge in November from Republican frontrunner Mark Ronchetti. Our governor pulled the guard and then gave stimulus checks to illegal immigrants. You can't fight crime if you don't secure the border. Ronchetti, a former TV meteorologist, has 45% support in the GOP primary. That's according to a poll published in the Albuquerque Journal. This gives him a commanding lead over other GOP candidates, who are all polling at less than 20 percent. I care deeply for New Mexico. We have got to make sure that we have a seat at the table, that our family values, our culture, and our way of life is being represented in Washington. And right now, it's not. As for congressional races, incumbent Republican Congresswoman Yvette Harrell is running for re-election. She's New Mexico's only Republican in Congress and has no primary challenger. And now to New Jersey, the state has no Senate or gubernatorial elections. Voters will head to the polls to select their party nominees for the 12 congressional districts. Four of nine Democratic incumbents face challengers, but those races aren't expected to be close. Since the pandemic lockdowns, parents have been more involved in their children's education. Some didn't like what they were seeing and turned to other sources of education like homeschooling. And TD's Eileen Ang speaks with a nonprofit that says it aims to boost self-esteem by using a more creative and appealing approach to teaching American history. Paul Hemphill is an author, speaker, and veteran. He started American Education Defenders in 2020 as a direct response to the negative classroom influences on the self-esteem of our nation's children. This message that we give is, is universal. And it's all about human nature. It's all about activating the good uh, aspects of human nature in each of us uh, and bring it to the fore so our kids can really appreciate themselves and the country in which they uh, grew up in. Users subscribe to America's 52 Stories and watch a full-length video every Wednesday for 52 weeks. It helps students relate to the subject matter better so they feel connected. 
Although he's based in Massachusetts, 73% of his subscribers are from California. What I do is that I tell stories inside the word. History is the word story. And stories are made up of people who make good and bad decisions. And so the way we want to help our kids grow up and become better uh, individuals and better citizens is to show them how people made bad decisions and good decisions from our country's past. Example lessons include keeping a sense of humor, balancing enthusiasm with responsibility, focusing on results, not excuses, treating failure as a valuable teacher, emphasizing quality, and speaking up to get respect. Hemphill believes his program can help students more than critical race theory, or CRT, in schools. I've had people say to me, Paul, your program is the only program out there that counters uh, critical race theory, where everything coming from critical race theory makes you want to hate yourself, hate your country, whereas everything from your program makes the student want to really like themselves, appreciate themselves, and appreciate the country in which all these freedoms and opportunities are available. The company is inspired from a best-selling book he wrote in 2018 called Inspiration for Teens. It consists of 200 life lessons from 88 true stories with moral values from American history. The stories are available on video and audio for homeschooling and personal growth. Just two days after the Texas school shooting, the California State Senate passed a bill that may leave schools more vulnerable to similar attacks. Citing equity, a new Senate bill will no longer require schools to report threats from students to police. The California Senate passed a bill that ends a mandatory requirement for schools to notify the police of any violent threats. Senate Bill 1273 passed the upper house on May 26th, just two days after the Uvalde, Texas school shooting. The former law required anyone aware of a school official being attacked, assaulted, or physically threatened by any pupil to promptly report the incident. Anyone who failed to do so could face a fine up to $1,000. Senator Melissa Melendez of Lake Elsinore opposed the bill, calling it a terrifying policy. We have seen an increase in violence at our schools. And in too many cases, there are instances where a school and parents or caregivers try their hardest to intervene, to redirect, to do some progressive discipline, to get the kid back on track, and it doesn't work. And the end result is other people's children die because of it. She said she can't believe that just two days after the heartbreaking events in Texas, the state Senate would pass a measure making our children less safe at school. Melendez added, requiring teachers to report threats of violence in the classroom may be the only warning law enforcement has to prevent a future violent attack. Senator Stephen Bradford, representing Los Angeles, introduced the bill. He told the Daily Caller that the previous law has led to alarming disparities in both non-white students and students with disabilities. He believes they are the most likely to face arrest. The American Civil Liberties Union praised the bill as promoting racial equity. The bill moves to a vote in the California State Assembly. If it passes, it will then go to Governor Gavin Newsom for a signature. Daniel Hall, NTD News, California. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, LeBron James, now a billionaire, according to Forbes. We'll take a look at where his money comes from. And at the French Open today, 13-time champion Rafael Nadal 
advanced to the finals thanks to a gruesome injury to Alexander Zverev. NTD's Dave Martin explains what happened. That and more coming up. the best time to purchase a home in California. According to one real estate agent, without a crystal ball, nobody really knows. But one thing that is for sure is that many people appear to be priced out of the market. NTD's Jackie Rios has more from Los Angeles. If the American dream is to own a home, then the California version of that has become a nightmare. High prices are keeping most people out of the game. We talked to a real estate broker to find out if the average Californian has any hopes of becoming a homeowner. There are so few listings that have been put on the market in the last three or four years that it is a struggle for buyers to be able to get a home and they are competing with each other for that same house. So lack of inventory and lots of buyers with nothing to buy. Claudia Story, a real estate broker in Southern California, has been in the business for 35 years. She listed several reasons for the high prices. It's a lack of inventory that's driven up the prices and great interest rates. You know, we had interest rates maybe 2 3% for quite a while, and so that also has encouraged people to want to buy. Uh, buyers will make maybe 15, 16 offers on properties before they find one that they can actually successfully buy. She said the competition is so intense that people are not only paying completely with cash, but also waiving standard procedures like inspections. Um, but you're going to need 20% down most of the time to have your offer accepted. You can make an offer with a 3% or 5% down, but you're going to be in competition with people that have all cash. And, and they're going for sometimes 300000 over asking price just to secure the property. We just had that last week. Stories said most of the cash is coming from one specific foreign country. It's mainly coming from China. It is um, amazing what you see in cash. And a lot of the families over there are pooling their money together and buying property here in this state. Um, my own home as a personal example is I've had people who paid over $3 million cash for a home and they haven't moved in yet, but they are bringing their money here so that it's safer. All those cash only purchases are driving up prices too. A lot of those formerly cash buyers are actually getting loans now. They're finding they've got their money over here, they've had it here for a while, and so they're able to get a loan and leverage their money better. Um, but it's absolutely pushed prices way sky high. Stories say that in Los Angeles, the average price of a 3,000 square foot house with three to four bedrooms and two bathrooms is over $1 million. Neighboring Orange County is about the same price. In the greater LA area, San Bernardino is the most affordable, with averages of over $600,000. Jack Urios, NTD News, Los Angeles. LeBron James is now joining Michael Jordan as a basketball billionaire, according to Forbes estimates. But unlike Jordan, James has hit this milestone while still actively playing. NTD's Faye Quarter has more.
LeBron James is officially a billionaire, according to Forbes. Forbes estimates he's made over $385 million on the court through NBA salaries and over $900 million off the court from endorsement deals and other businesses. James was paid $4 million when he first entered the league with the Cleveland Cavaliers, and it's increased every year all the way to $40 million. The only exception was when he went to the Miami Heat, where he endured a pay cut so the Heat could buy other top talent. Forbes estimates James was the second highest paid athlete this past year between Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. As for off the court, James of course has a deal with Nike, which pays him tens of millions every year. James first endorsed Nike back in 2003 and then made a lifetime agreement in 2015. Nike does a lot of business in China, which means James also has a financial interest there. James also ignored a $15 million deal with McDonald's to invest in fast food chain Blaze Pizza, where employees make your pizza right in front of you. He also built media production business Spring Hill with his partner Maverick Carter. Spring Hill assisted in producing Space Jam, a new legacy. James also has a minority stake in Liverpool FC, the soccer team, and Fenway Sports Group, which owns the Boston Red Sox. Forbes also estimates he owns around $80 million in real estate and over $500 million in cash and other investments. While Michael Jordan was the first basketball billionaire, he didn't join the club until after he retired in 2003. LeBron is the first to hit 10 figures while still playing. Bay Quarter, NTD News. And now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. Rafael Nadal advanced the French Open finals Friday after his opponent Alexander Zverev was forced to withdraw with a leg injury during the second set of their semifinals match. Zverev fell to the ground during a rally screaming in pain and grabbing his ankle. He eventually exited the court in a wheelchair and returned minutes later in crutches to officially withdraw. The accident occurred just as the already grueling match was headed to a second set tiebreaker. Nadal had already won the first set, and the two had been on the court for more than three hours when Zverev went down. Nadal, who is playing on his 36th birthday, is now the second oldest finalist in French Open history, a tournament he's won a record 13 times before. Should he win Sunday, it would mark his record-extending 22nd Grand Slam title. On the women's side, American teenager Coco Gauff is playing in her first Grand Slam final. She'll take on number one ranked Iga Sviatek. Sviatek is on quite a roll though, having won 35 straight matches and five straight tournament titles. She'll be looking for a second French Open title. Game two of the NBA Finals is set for Sunday night with Golden State looking to tie the series up. Boston pulled off the upset in game one with a shocking fourth quarter show to steal the win. The Celtics hit nine threes in that final period to turn a 12 point deficit into a 12 point victory. The two teams combined for a record 43s, seven of which came from Steph Curry. Curry hit the first six of those in the opening quarter though and was somewhat quiet thereafter. Boston's Al Horford, playing in his first finals at age 36, hit six of eight threes on the night and scored 26 points overall to lead the Celtics. Meanwhile, Boston's leading scorer during the regular season, Jason Tatum, hit just three of 17 shots on the night and finished with 12 points. On the ice tonight, the Rangers and Lightning will square off in Game 2 at Madison Square Garden, with Tampa Bay looking to tie the series up. New York won the opener 6-2 and have now won seven straight home playoff games. The loss for the Lightning snapped a six-game playoff win streak. The winner of this series will take on the winner of Edmonton, Colorado in the Stanley Cup Finals. The Avalanche are up 2-0 with Game 3 set for Saturday at Edmonton. 
The Special Olympics has dropped their COVID vaccine requirement after legal threats from Florida officials. The organization was facing a $27.5 million fine because of an initial refusal to drop its requirement that participants show proof of vaccine to attend. Florida law prohibits businesses from doing so and can levy a fine of up to $5,000 for each violation. According to Florida's Surgeon General, Florida health officials had tried for six months to convince the organization to not impose a vaccine requirement. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up a week after the Champions League final, testimonies of assaults on fans are piling up. Investigations are underway in Paris as both Liverpool and Real Madrid demand answers from the French government. And what's life like in Russia 100 days into the war with Ukraine? Many Russians have lost their jobs as sanctions and withdrawals of Western companies hit home hard. Find out more in just a moment here on NTD News. NTD's Capital Report. It's about getting answers. Cutting through the fog of politics. It's about your questions and our chances to ask. What is the net impact of the American Carson Graves? Thank you for joining us. We're speaking to those in power to find out what does this mean for the people. We're here so you are in the know. Both Liverpool and Real Madrid football clubs are demanding answers from the French government about troubles at the Champions League final. France's Minister of the Interior blamed Liverpool supporters, but testimonies are piling up about gangs of French thugs with weapons robbing the English fans and subjecting them to violence. NTD's France correspondent David Vives has more details. What really happened last Saturday night at the Champions League final? One week after the troubled event, testimonies are piling up, and so are the questions. French outlet Le Parisien featured two Liverpool supporters who said this was the scariest day of their life, and that hundreds or even thousands of thugs from the Paris suburbs assaulted fans with knives, iron bar and machetes. English UFC fighter Paddy Pimblet told the French media he saw packs of around 30 men with weapons rushing at supporters and that some supporters got beaten, robbed of phones, watches and bags, pinned to the ground as their belongings were stolen. Liverpool Football Club launched an online platform to collect testimonies to better understand what happened. The club's executive director, Billy Hogan, said he received 5,000 testimonies in 24 hours and was horrified by what he read. Real Madrid Football Club are also demanding clarity from organizers over measures taken to protect supporters. The club said fans deserve an answer. Minister of the Interior Gérald Darmanin spoke to the French Senate on Wednesday. He insisted the blame was squarely with the Liverpool supporters. It is clear. All the security service notes say that the people from Liverpool pose the public order problems not all its supporters, but a small number of its supporters. He also said 30 to 40,000 supporters tried to get in with false tickets. However, this view has been heavily criticized in France, including by fact-checker medias. 
The New York Times says the number trying to enter with false tickets was 2,500. The French Federation of Football also put the number at less than 3,000, less than 10% of the figure quoted by Darmanin. During a public meeting, one politician asked a question to the Minister of the Interior. We have police sources who told us that in the police custody there were 18 Algerians, Tunisians and Moroccans, not a single English or Spanish supporter. Why do you keep saying that it was the English supporters? Why don't you admit that it was the scum from the suburbs who committed these crimes? Darmanin did not answer, saying he wouldn't point out people's nationalities. European football's governing body EUFA has commissioned an independent inquiry into the incident, while French sports minister Amélie Oudéa-Castera said she would meet with her British counterpart Nigel Huddleston next Monday. Behind the incidents that occurred in the Stade de France lays a sensible question about the state of security in the nation, especially in Paris and its suburbs, including Saint-Denis. This area and suburbs nearby are known for their violence and drug trafficking, as well as being one of the strongholds of radical Islam in France. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Although most Russians live far away from Ukraine and the unrest happening there, the sanctions and withdrawals of Western companies have hit home hard. Some jobs have been lost and people have had to change their living habits. NTD's Joanne Robson brings us the story of one family that lives 300 miles east of Moscow. As the invasion of Ukraine enters its 100th day, life for many ordinary Russians has changed a lot. At the beginning, the military operations seemed far away. Yet within days, many citizens felt the impact of the unprecedented sanctions by Western governments, as well as economic punishment by corporations. Sofia Suvarova from Nizhny Novgorod lost her job in the PR department of a major IT company. Although her husband is working full-time, the family can't afford things they used to take for granted. We practically do not order takeaway food anymore. It used to be very convenient when you have small children. We go to cafes less often. We had to reduce some entertainment, like concerts and theatres. We try to keep this for children, but adults have had to cut it out. With dozens of foreign companies withdrawing their business from Russia, tens of thousands of once-secure jobs are now suddenly in question. Sufia lost her job after her employer pulled out of the country. They offered to relocate Sufia to continue working from abroad, but she said it was too complicated for her family. My colleagues received offers to move and continue their work in other countries. I also had such an offer, but for me, moving is impossible. My parents here are already quite old. My husband has a job here, and the main income is my husband's work. The children go to school here, to playgroup, to hobby groups, so it's impossible for us. We stay, and I will be looking for work here. Sufia says finding a new job in Russia is not easy. Despite the financial difficulties the family is facing, she continues to support what's happening in Ukraine. To be against Russia's special military operation in Ukraine because I cannot go to the theatre at the moment is a very childish attitude. This is something more important. 
Joanne Robson, NTD News. Coming up, during migration season, more birds collide with building windows, leading to injury and death. In New York, volunteers scout the streets looking for injured birds. And we'll take a look at an albino Galapagos giant tortoise that recently hatched at a Swiss zoo. Staff at the zoo say the hatchling is quite rare. Find out more when we return. During migration season, birds risk colliding with skyscrapers or other tall buildings. In New York, volunteers scout the streets looking for injured birds, which are taken to rehab and then eventually released. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. During migration season, more birds collide with building windows, leading to injury and death. The biggest obstacle are windows that reflect back trees and the sky. New York City, we are on a migratory flyway, so a lot of birds pass through our city as they migrate south or north to their, to their overwintering or breeding grounds. The shiny glass windows that make disorienting reflections, those can be treated with window films um, and patterned, patterned window films that help a bird distinguish that it's not, in fact, a skyline or a tree line it's flying into, that it is in fact glass and a surface. To make windows bird safe, Clem recommends sticking clear bird film across them or hanging parrot cord strings. Turning off lights at night in office buildings or closing blinds also helps. But it's happening all over the world. Wherever there is birds in glass, you have potential victims. And the whole thing is, is that the responsible thing for us humans to do to deal with this threat is to make it safe, make our built environment safe. Once a week, volunteers scout the streets to document birds that have been injured by collisions. If they find injured birds, they bring them to the city's only wildlife rehabilitation center, the Wild Bird Fund. We examine a lot of birds that have come in with collisions and we treat them uh, frequently for eye injuries. Um, we will give them an anti-inflammatory uh, medication almost always um, and then provide them with the appropriate food and water and a quiet resting place um, while they recover. The Wild Bird Fund treats and nurses the injured birds. Whenever possible, it returns them back into the wild to continue their migration. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And finally, a rare albino Galapagos giant tortoise made its public debut at a Swiss zoo today. Let's take a look. Two Galapagos giant tortoises were born last month in the Tropiquarium in Servion, Switzerland, as part of a program to preserve the endangered species. One is black like its parents and the other is albino. Their gender has yet to be determined. We were quite surprised by the tortoise's color. It can happen at birth, but after two days we were sure it was an albino when it pointed the tip of its head. So it was really surprising. For this species, it's quite extraordinary. The mother, who weighs more than 220 pounds, laid five eggs in February, and the albino baby hatched on May 1st. The other baby hatched on May 5th after the eggs spent two and a half months in an incubator. The father weighs nearly 400 pounds. The pair are about 30 years old. The success rate of mating is only around 2 to 3% for this species. 
Baby turtles weigh a little under two ounces at birth and fit in the palm of the hand. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.